reading 1 John chapter 4, and we will be beginning at verse 7. This is what Holy Scripture says. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friend, I would just say, if uh, you're not familiar with that hymn, I would commend it to your careful consideration. You could take that song sheet home with you and uh, read through those words again, and you will find it to be a great comfort when the trials cross your path to remember that what God ordains is always good. His will abideth holy, and with the trouble comes the grace. These are good things to know when you need to know them, so I commend it to you. Before we look to God's Word together, let's pray and ask for His help. Father, we thank You for being a God who is so capable and so able 
And we praise you that just as we sing of your greatness, your power, and your sovereignty, and declare our trust, our unyielding trust to you and in you, we pray now that as we open the book that you again would instruct us and help us and correct us and strengthen us and teach us and rebuke us and build us up and do all the things that your word is able to do by the power of your Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, come and be our primary teacher now. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, you can take your Bible if you like and open to Matthew chapter 16. We'll be there in a moment, Matthew chapter 16. I don't know if you've ever played the game Ultimate, just a show of hands, if you've played Ultimate before. Ultimate is uh, also known as Ultimate Frisbee, in case you're wondering. Um, but you're, well, you're not allowed to call it Ultimate Frisbee because it's a copyright infringement. Whammo uh, owns, the company Whammo owns the name Frisbee. So you just have to call it Ultimate. I learned all kinds of things about Ultimate this week. Uh, so for those of you of my generation, Ultimate is kind of like a game of soccer sort of with a Frisbee, all right? You play it on a field, you're trying to get the Frisbee from one end to the other, you're trying to make some points. Uh, Ultimate was invented in the late 60s, around 1969, early 70s, which means uh, it was framed by the ethos of the day as well. So that kind of anti-authoritarian, free love generation said, hey, we're gonna invent a game that has no referees. And that's the great claim to fame of Ultimate. There are no referees. It is a self-policing kind of game. Uh, and, and it's that way on principle. And so if, you, if you're a really nasty person, they'll just stop the game and say, we don't want to play with you. Uh, <laughs> so you've got to be a certain kind of person to play. Now, Ultimate has rules. It's its own game, right? It has rules. Uh, but this sportsmanship ethos is part of what makes it unique. It's part of what makes it um, distinct from other games. It's part and parcel of the game. In many ways, I think Ultimate serves as an excellent illustration of the three C's, letter C, not oceans. We're not sailing the three C's. Well, we could be, but don't, anyway. Uh, the three C's of elder-led congregational churches. So these are things, um, when you play ultimate, there are things that are assumed or agreed upon, even if you didn't know it, when you go to play that game. First of all, it's the game. You're playing ultimate. You're not playing, if, if Ricky was here, I'd say frisbee golf, but he's not here. So it's called disc golf. You're not playing disc golf, you're playing ultimate. So we would call this your confession. We all agree that this is what this is, your confession. Secondly, when you play ultimate, you're saying, we're going to play the game a certain way. So in ultimate, like I said, no referees, SOTG, spirit of the game, that's the big moniker in ultimate. Athletes are expected to call their own fouls. You don't disparage the opposition, you losers over there. You're very quick to admit your own fault. And you almost always give the benefit of the doubt if somebody calls a fault against you. We might call this the covenant of the game. So there's a confession, there's a covenant, and then there's thirdly just the, the rules of the game. Co Ultimate does have rules, and you've got to play by the rules, the, the field of play, how things are scored, what makes for a fair catch, an illegal catch, and we would call this the constitution, the rules of the game. So 
When the game of ultimate starts, it is very common to see people running around the field with these three documents tucked under their arm, under this arm, and throwing the disc with the other arm. No, of course it's not. Nobody runs on the field with those documents under their arm. It is assumed when you play the game that you know these things and that you agree with all three of them, much like life in a church. I don't think anybody here has a copy of our Constitution tucked under their arm. I don't think you bring the Constitution of the church to every gathering of the church. But life in a church is, is carried out under a Constitution with a covenant and a confession that binds us all together. And that's in play every time we gather, whether you're cognizant of it or not. And these three documents helped us shape who we are, what we do, and also the way we're going to do it, at least what we're going to aim for in how we do it. So our definition of the local church is this. A local church is a group of safe people who identify with one another and seek to glorify God by regularly gathering together to worship him and proclaim his word, to affirm one another's profession of faith by the right practices of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and to display to the world his gospel by their authentic love for one another. And as we move along, doing life together as a local church, there may be times where we have to pull out the rule book. We've got to grab the Constitution when there's some kind of disagreement among us. We may need to remind each other of the spirit of the game, the covenant that we've made to one another when we're walking through a trial or some kind of difficulty or disagreement. And on very rare occasions, we're going to have to test to make sure that we're all playing the same game, that we're under the same confession. And if not, we're going to have to tell somebody, well, you can't play with us anymore because you're operating with a different confession. So we've talked about what conversion to Christ is. Remember uh, the thief on the cross, a great example of this, someone coming to God through faith in Christ. And then we talk about how the, the first need of a new believer is to be baptized. And then once they are baptized, to immediately join with the local church as a member to get in the inner circle of the water buffalo. Remember that? And now we're taking one Sunday to consider, okay, how do we move along together, doing life together as the ecclesia of Jesus? Jesus, as the gathered people of Jesus. We want to think about some of the nuts and bolts of it, what we would refer to as our confession, our covenant, and our constitution. And I've put them in that order because that's their order of importance. So we're going to look at each one of these, and then next year when we come back to this series, that's fun to say, next year, um, We'll look at the Lord's Supper, and then we'll look at, uh, finally, uh, discipline, church discipline, what it means to be removed from the membership of a church. So we're just, we're just trying to think in this, the church in the whole way of like entrance to participation to exit either through death or discipline. And that's how this whole series is being framed. But today, we're going to talk about ultimate church. Okay, here we go. Uh, number one, confession. So with a confession, we agree about what we all believe. That's how the church is formed. Now, we saw this back in Matthew 16. So this is where we are, Matthew 16, when the church is built on a good confession. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's his good confession. Jesus answered him, 
Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this rock, in this passage here, this rock refers to Peter immediately, but by extension, as we saw in Matthew 18 and then in Matthew 28, we looked at all this already, it refers to everyone who confesses or who affirms that Jesus is the world's only Savior, the Christ, the Son of the God who is alive. That's the good confession. And we suggested that 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 text in Matthew 16 talks about a what and a, do you remember? A who, right? So what is the content of the confession? Who are the people that make that confession? So the what is, is the confession. It's the profession. This is what I believe. That's what Peter says. This is what I believe. So we're using the word confession here not in the sense of admitting sin to another person or to the Lord. We confess our sins. Not in that way, but confession as a verbal acknowledgement of belief in the gospel. A verbal acknowledgement of belief in the gospel. This is how Paul uses the word in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? You confess with the mouth. The Bible never conceives of secret Christians in the sense of, you know, this is all internal, just you and Jesus, and you kind of make some decision and then go about your life. The Bible cannot conceive of that. There has to be some acknowledgement of, Christ's, of Christ to Christ's followers. And the content of that acknowledgement is not merely, I like Jesus. <laughs> Lots of people say that. We need to know that you understand and believe the true things about Jesus. This is what Paul, part of what he meant when he talked about one faith. Listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One faith. It's the faith that Jude describes in Jude 3 as being once delivered to all the saints, meaning there are a, there's, there's a body of facts about Jesus that one either accepts or denies. You either believe or you do not believe. And John, when, like for instance, when John writes his gospel, he tells us why he wrote it in John chapter 20. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And that, that personal belief results in public confession. So Patrick read for us from 1 John. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Or 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So you see, a church Fundamentally, this is really important, a church is a group of people who form themselves around a confession, a statement of what is true about Jesus, the what of the gospel. 
To use our earlier analogy of ultimate, imagine if you showed up to play ultimate and there were like six dudes there with lacrosse sticks. Are they called sticks, rackets? What are they called? I'm looking to the young men. Sticks, yeah. So there's six guys standing there with lacrosse sticks and you're there to play ultimate. Well, that's not gonna work. You cannot form yourselves into one game. You have different confessions, different gospels. You're not agreeing about what the game is. That's why you can't have atheists and true Christians forming themselves into a church. There has to be a shared belief, an agreed-upon set of facts about who Jesus is, what the gospel is. I uh, grew up in some of my growing up years in a tradition that said, we have no creed but the Bible. We have no creed but the Bible, no statements of faith, nothing. We have no creed but the Bible. And that sounds really pious and great until somebody in your church says, yeah, I have no creed but the Bible, and I think the Bible teaches that all roads lead to heaven and Jesus isn't really God. Now what do you do? He says he believes the Bible. You say you believe the Bible. Friends, this has been going on for centuries and centuries. This is why these documents are written, because there's always some Yahoo spouting off some heresy saying, I believe the Bible. The Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, he says, I believe the Bible. The Mormon knocks on your door, he says, I believe the Bible. They don't believe the Bible. So we write these statements of faith, these written confessions. Now, these statements are not the Bible. That's, what you got, that's where people get a little mix, mixed up sometimes. They're not the Bible. They don't have the authority of the Bible. They're written by men. We admit that right from the start. That's why statements of faith can be corrected. They can be improved on over time. But a really good statement of faith, a confession, is going to serve a, as the hub around which a church forms. This church summarizes what we believe to be an accurate distillation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in what we call our statement of faith. When you became a member of this church, you were interviewed by an elder. He asked you two questions. He asked you a lot of questions, but these were two of them. One was, have you read the statement of faith? And if you would answer no, we would say, let's stop the interview process and let's go back and read it together. The second question is, do you agree with the statement of faith? <laughs> because you could read it and in your mind be thinking, ah. And we want to know that because the church is formed by a shared commitment. Our statement of faith says, look, this is what fundamentally unites us. This, this, this shared belief in these things is what brings us into community. It defines who we are. To be here and to be with us requires a person to believe as we believe. And really, that's just doing in miniature what takes place in, in a grand sense. Nobody is a member of the universal church who does not make the good confession. <laughs> and no one can be a member of this local church who doesn't agree with our little confession. And that confession, our statement of faith, I believe is in your song sheet. Am I correct? What page is it on? Seven? Page seven. So I want you to turn there to page seven. And uh, since we're talking about it, I want you to look at it with me and see the things that it emphasizes. These are not dusty documents to store in your closet, but these are things that are actually helpful in your Christian life. 
So our statement of faith says, number one, the Bible is the inspired, infallible, completed word of God without error in its original manuscripts. That's loaded with meaning and importance about what your Bible is and its role in your life. Number two, there is only one living and true God composed of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each eternally coexistent and fully God. That's what you can read to the Jehovah's Witness the next time he knocks on your door. Number three, God is sovereign over all creation and he directs all things in accordance with his eternal and immutable, that means unchanging, purpose. Number four, the first man was created perfect but willfully disobeyed God, we're speaking here of Adam, severing his communion with God, thus leaving his descendants, all mankind, that's you and me, at enmity with God and spiritually dead in their sin. Number five, for no reason other than to glorify his own self, God in his eternal purpose chose to reconcile a multitude of people to himself through the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For this multitude, Jesus Christ took on the form of a man and became their perfect substitute on the cross, satisfying divine justice on their behalf. His sacrifice, his sacrifice, purchased all things necessary to ensure their eternal salvation. Number six, Although God commands men everywhere to repent, such is the power of sin that men will not of themselves obey this command. Therefore, God, determining to save those for whom Christ died, draws them by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit who renews their minds, hearts, and wills so that they freely trust in Christ. Number seven, saving faith is of necessity accompanied by repentance which involves the recognition of, sorrow over, and the turning away from all known sin with a new desire to live in obedience to Jesus Christ. Number eight, Jesus Christ alone is the head of the one true Christian church, which is made up of only those people who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. All these are presently indwelt by the Holy Spirit and by their words and deeds show their allegiance to Christ. Which is actually a really good place to stop and just ask the question, what about you? In the words of this statement of faith, have, have you repented from your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ? Does his Holy Spirit indwell you? Are you walking in the strength of his spirit? Have you been born again? You will never get to heaven by knowing a statement of faith. You will only get to heaven by knowing Jesus Christ. So if you don't know Christ, I would urge you to turn away from the sins that are entangling your life and turn toward Jesus Christ, who is so aptly described in this statement. Just read Numbers 5, 6, and 7, and 8 again and see what Christ has done for sinners like you and me. He's done everything necessary in order for us to be truly saved. He even gives us his spirit so that we might truly believe on him. And upon believing on him, we do the next thing, which is to be baptized 
And then we participate in the Lord's Supper. Number nine in our statement, there are two ordinances which have been instituted by the Lord Jesus, believer's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Neither of these has in itself the power to save men from their sins, but are outward symbols of inward spiritual realities. And finally, number 10, God in his eternal purpose has also appointed a day of judgment, a day in which he will judge all mankind in righteousness by Jesus Christ Every human who has ever lived will appear before Christ to give an account of their life. Did you catch that? Every human who has ever lived will appear before Christ to give an account of their life and to receive either everlasting life in the presence of God or everlasting torment in hell. These are the two options. So to become a member of Grace Fellowship Church. You've got to read and you've got to understand the basics of this statement, this confession. You've got to tell us that this is what you believe, that you're in uh, substantial agreement with this statement and the claims of this statement, that you're not like veering to the right or the left. There might be parts that are a little fuzzy to you. You're not sure what every word means, but you read the whole thing and go, yeah, I agree with that. She might read that statement and say, well, yeah, I, don't, I don't agree about the part about getting, you know, believing first and then getting baptized. I think you should sprinkle babies with water. I think that's what baptism is. And then we would say, well, that's fine, but you're not in agreement with this statement. And to be in the same church as us would be akin to you bringing soccer balls to the ultimate field. It would get really confusing quickly. We, we can play similar games with each other. Like, why don't you go play in that field right there? Right beside us. It's still in a good park. It's the gospel park. <laughs> and, and that's great. You play there. We'll play here. We're doing ultimate. You're doing soccer. Okay. We'll be Baptists. You'll be paedo-Baptists. And we'll love you and we'll cheer for you. But there are some matters that are, are just too different for us to function as one church. And so for us, this statement of faith is what defines our What? And as a church, we give a nice little hat tip to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith to say, yeah, we're not just inventing this stuff. We can go back 400 years. We can go a lot further back, actually. But in the English language, one of the oldest confessions of faith like this was written in 1689. You know why they wrote it? Because they were getting beat up and killed because uh, everybody thought they were lunatics. And so they wrote a statement that was in large part just to copy the Westminster Confession of Faith, what happened to be Peter Baptist, Presbyterian, different form of government. And they said, look, we can agree with all of that except for these little things right here. Why were they doing that? They're doing it to say we're in the long stream of true believers in Jesus. And we, we're just happy to plop ourselves down right there. We don't want to invent anything. We just want to be, we want to be, we want to be true to the word of God. So confessions are great. Confessions are needed. Maybe you're sitting there going, like, really? I'm like, yes, you don't know how much they are. They're absolutely needed. I pastored a church once that uh, wrote their confession of faith into the title deed for the property and said, if, there's a, if there is a church building on this property, the people in that church must believe this. And I accidentally discovered the title deed. I don't think, I think it was the only copy. It was buried in files somewhere. And I remember pulling it out and going, uh-oh, like you got to believe this. And then I read it and I'm like, yes, because it's good. It was really good. And so when I departed from that church, I said, I'm going to preach to you your statement of faith. Those are my like last 10 sermons at that church because it was so great. My point in that, however, is that... Um, Nobody remembered it when I got there. It was buried in a closet somewhere. And I know the guy who was preaching there before me wouldn't have agreed with it. 
So a statement of faith is great as long as you remember it. Grace Fellowship Church members, I feel like saying, like, raise your right hand and repeat after me, but I won't. But, but can we please just agree we're not going to forget our statement of faith? Yes? Okay, good. I just, thank you. Uh, good. Good things can be forgotten. Good things can be ignored. Now, what if you've got a great confession of faith, all right? I think ours is pretty good. What if you've got a really good one? Everybody knows it and believes it. And then they act really terribly and treat each other awful. That's not very good, is it? So back to ultimate, we want to play with the spirit of the game. This is number two, the covenant. So in a covenant, we agree to treat each other a certain way. Now, you know your Bible's full of covenants. Often the covenant is, is most often it's God making an, an arrangement, agreement, a contract, covenant with a single human being or a group of human beings. Occasionally, there are covenants made between two human beings like David and Jonathan, make a covenant with one another to take care of each other. Sometimes con, uh, covenants are conditional. If, if you do this, I will do that. Sometimes they are unconditional, like God with Noah. I'm putting a rainbow in the sky and I'm never flooding the earth. I'm never destroying the earth with a flood again. No conditions attached to that. At, at its heart, a covenant is a promise. It's an expression of the heart. It's a pledge to do something, not do something. You might think of it like giving somebody your word. I give you my word, I'll, 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 I'll do this. In local churches, covenants dictate the play, how we're going to play the game. They're not the rules of the game, but they're the, they, they reflect the spirit of the play. And we take our covenant very seriously. Uh, in ultimate, it's called spirit of the game. And that's really what sets ultimate off as different from other sports. We don't need referees because we all agree with the spirit of the game. And in a sense, our commitment to live with each other a certain way from our covenant, it's that which marks us off as a church from the world. We're, we're saying we're not gonna adopt all that crazy noise stuff that's happening out there, right? There, anybody agree with me there's a lot of craziness out there? And, and we're just not doing that here um, because we've, we've made a promise to each other. Now, I think there are two things that people can misunderstand about covenants. So before I look at ours, I want to think about the two things that are easily misunderstood. The first one is that these are just a bunch of man-made rules, like an addition to the Bible. And I would just argue that's not true at all. If you look at our confession, um, every statement in the confession is linked to Bible verses. So a covenant, uh, sorry, a covenant, yes. Covenant confession. Our covenant, you look at all the statements in the covenant, you'll see it's all linked to Bible verses. Covenants and confessions are similar in this way that they're taking what the Bible teaches and they're kind of doing a reader's digest with it. They're, they're summarizing some key facts. So a, a good covenant summarizes and assembles the Bible's teaching on how Christians are to live their behavior, their conduct. Nothing legalistic about a covenant. If you don't want to do what our covenant says, then basically you're saying, I don't want to do what the Bible says, right? If it's all based on scripture and you say, I don't want to do it, then you're saying, I don't want to do what the Bible says. And that's a, you've got a much bigger problem than a problem with the covenant. The second thing I've heard people say is that um, no human being can actually do these things. And that all we're really doing when we read that covenant is, is we're putting on 
display our gross religious hypocrisy. <laughs> and I think that problem is easily, easily solved um, with one word. And that's the word that is very carefully chosen in our covenant, the word engage. I engage, therefore, by aid of the Holy Spirit to walk with you in Christian love. What do you mean when you use the word engage? To engage something means to pledge to pursue. This is what the word means, to pledge to pursue. That's really important. Because if our covenant said, I will, therefore, by aid of the Holy Spirit, walk with you in Christian love, we'd all have to stop right there and go, well, I, I, <laughs> I haven't loved all of you perfectly all the time. You haven't loved me perfectly all the time. So we are hypocrites. We are liars. But that's not what we're saying. We're saying, I'm promising to make my best effort to engage I pledge to pursue the ideal that this covenant summarizes. This is kind of a weird example. It's the only one I could think of. But if you've watched enough war movies, you'll be familiar with the, the expression, guy flying a jet, target engaged. Right? What does he mean? He's got a lock on him, the little thing on the thing, and he's got a red button. If he pushes the red button, bad for the bad guy. Well, this covenant of ours serves as a kind of targeting system, not, not to blow each other up. Uh, it's a targeting system for acts of love and grace. So here's what we're aiming to do. Here's what we're engaging. Here's how we're seeking to live. That is why, brothers and sisters, reading the covenant over and over again at every members meeting, when we take the Lord's Supper and at other times, is such a good thing. Those readings are intended to operate like a diagnostic. You take your car to the mechanic because something's flashing and he plugs in the diagnostic reader tool thing. Sorry, Darren, don't know what it's called. And, and it tells him this is the problem, right? And the covenant operates that way. It's a diagnostic. You, you go to your doctor for a physical. You were paying no attention to that little mark on your arm. He takes a look at it and he says, oh, he puts it under his light. He says, we're going to have to deal with that. You didn't know what it was. And the covenant functions like a corrective to spiritual drift because we're in the world and we're always being pulled towards worldly things. And you read that covenant and it gets your boat pointed back in the right direction again. Oh yeah, these are the people I love. These are the people I'm to serve. These are the people I'm committed to. These are the ones I say I'm going to pray for. These are the ones I'm going to love. Your covenant is like a New Testament GPS it's, it's all scripture, so we're just assembling a representation of, I think there's maybe 600 New Testament ethical imperatives, commands. And so we're just, we can't put them all, like we just read the New Testament. So we're, we're summarizing it. We're making it into this useful document. We're saying this is how we intend to live with each other. So you can, you can all agree that you're playing ultimate. That's the confession. And you can even agree what the rules of the game are. That's the Constitution we'll see in a second. But if everybody's just a cantankerous jerk, then it ain't no fun to play ultimate, is it? You need a covenant, an expression of the spirit of the game, how we intend to treat each other. So we use our covenant to remind us of that, the spirit of the game, how we intend to do life with one another. If you're a member of this church, you know it. So if you just attend here, you've not been to a membership class, you don't attend member meetings, you're not a member of this church. 
that clear? But if you are a member of the church, you know you're a member because you've been interviewed, you've taken the membership covenant. I would like you who are the members of this local church to now stand, if you would, because you have a copy. You can go ahead and stand. You have a copy of the membership covenant in your song sheet there, and we're going to read it out loud together, and we'll use it like that little New Testament GPS to give a good check on us. So let's read out loud. Uh, let me just make sure I have the same copy that you do. Otherwise, that would be embarrassing. I mean, we only have one copy, but one is in the first person and the other one isn't. That's, I don't want you to think we have like, <laughs> yeah, fake copies of the covenant. That kind of undermines everything. Here we go. Let's read out loud together. Having been led with assurance by the Spirit of God to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, and upon profession of my repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, having been baptized by immersion in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, I engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk with you in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, even to the laying down of my life in service for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ and my brothers and sisters, and if called upon by my Lord to hazard my life for the gospel's sake, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain true biblical worship in it, observing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's table, discipline and doctrines as revealed in the Word of God, to contribute cheerfully and regularly of my income as God has graciously prospered me for the support of this church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel throughout all nations." I also engage to maintain family and private devotions, to biblically educate my children, to seek the salvation of my family and acquaintances, to be zealous in my efforts to advance the kingdom of my Savior, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in my dealings, faithful in my engagements, exemplary in my deportment, abstaining from all appearances of evil, and to avoid all backbiting, gossiping, and unrighteous anger. I further engage to watch over you, my brothers and sisters, in brotherly love, to remember you in prayer, to aid you in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the commandments of our Savior to secure it without delay. I also understand that if I am overtaken in any fault, I will be subject to biblical discipline which seeks my restoration. I moreover engage that when I remove from this place, I will as soon as possible unite with some other church of like faith and practice where I can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Did you see that word engage? One, two, three, four times it's there in that covenant. Rejoice in that word. Target acquired. <laughs> we pledge to pursue this. This is how we want to live our lives. And yet, even with a wonderful covenant, 
you still got to know the rules of the game. And that takes us to number three, which is our constitution. So with a constitution, we agree to operate the business of the church, choosing officers, how money is distributed, uh, the votes when you vote on things. We agree to operate the business of our church in a certain way. For those of you who are hockey fans, I don't know if you saw a couple of weeks ago that Connor Hellebuck was um, hit by an opposing player skating by his net. He's a, he's a goalie for the Winnipeg Jets, and his helmet mask all popped off, and he was laying face down on the ice. Half of his legs kind of in the net still, but his, his body over here. And the whistle didn't blow. And sure enough, who was it? I think it was Dallas. Yeah, Dallas scored, tied the game went around to win it, and everybody was like, the uproar. You should have seen the social medias. Like, it was just great uproar. Why didn't those referees blow the whistle? The goalie's lying face down on the ice. Why aren't they blowing the whistle? And the reason they didn't blow the whistle is because they were following the rules. In the NHL rule book, rule number 9.2 states, 9.6, if a goalkeeper has lost his helmet while the opposing team has control of the puck, play should only be stopped once there's no immediate scoring opportunity. So the referees did the right thing. They didn't blow the play dead because the other team had the puck. That's the rule. Now, we might want to debate the merit of that rule because <laughs> nobody wants to see a goalie with an exposed face taking a slap shot in the noggin. Like, that's a bad thing. So we may want to rethink that rule. But that game was played according to the existing rules. And the rules in this case are a really good example of a constitution. The Bible does not demand that churches have a constitution. Prudence demands that churches have a constitution. So you can have a church and not have a constitution, that's fine. You're not disobeying the Lord. But prudence suggests, if not demands, that having a constitution is a really, really good idea. Look, the only time anybody ever reads the Constitution is when there's a problem. I guarantee you that all the people who ran to the NHL rule book after that episode with Connor Hellebuck, not a single one of them woke up that morning and said, I'm going to read the NHL rule book. Right? When do you consult the rule book? You consult the rule book when there's trouble. Kids, you know this because you go to play a game and, and then there's a dispute. You know, you get scored on, but you think that wasn't fair. Like that, like that guy, he stepped out of bounds or he touched it with two hands or something. Like whatever it was, you, and so you have this little confab. You get together and you're talking about what are the rules of the game because you got to know the rules because you don't want them to score a point, whatever it is. When do we consult the rules? We consult the rules when there are problems. So a constitution is a set of rules that we, the members of this church, bind ourselves to in order to conduct good business together. And I just want to be really blunt that constitutions are the most useful when a church is in a rough patch. They are. Because it's always tempting to change the rules of the game when things are going wrong for you. Whether that's the leaders of the church or the members of the church, doesn't matter. It's always tempting to change the rules. When your team's always losing, that's when you want to change the rules. And so a constitution is there to say, oh, hold on a minute. We agree, all of us, whether it's the people in power or the ones being held in favor or the ones being held in disfavor, we all agreed these are the rules. We're going to conduct our business this way. I, I am not going to give you a single Bible verse, okay, for constitutions. There isn't one. 
It is just good sense. Constitutions are, are the thing furthest removed from the Bible. But also, because of the furthest removed from the Bible, that makes them the, the, the simplest to change and to adapt. What I, what I mean is, uh, you probably don't want to be changing your statement of faith a lot. Hardly ever, your confession. Why? Well, I mean, you might discover a way to say something that, you, that your original statement says, but you can, you can just say it a little bit better. That might be a good change to make with your statement of faith, make it clearer. Or, um, you know, there might be something that's being emphasized in the broader culture that you think would be useful to have in your statement of faith, so everybody who's a part of here understands this is what we believe about that, maybe. But what you certainly don't want is the ability in a church for five people to just sort of, you know, willy-nilly change the statement of faith, and now we're all saying we're Jehovah's Witnesses. Like that. So you don't want that to be easy to change. Nor do we want to mess around with our covenant, because, again, most of the covenant is just quoting Scripture. Now, we may decide that there's some things that receive, need to receive greater emphasis in our day. Covenant was written 22 years ago. Maybe now we look at it and say, mm, I think we should give some emphasis here. And, and maybe th this part isn't as, as important. We can shrink that down or something. But again, those, are the, those kinds of changes are very rare. A constitution, on the other hand, it is more of a living document. And what I mean by that is a constitution t talks about, and, and I, I'm sorry if you feel like when, as soon as somebody says the word constitution, there's some people just kind of go, that's it, my brain's off. He said constitution. Like, trust me, this is worth the effort. Because a constitution is, is, is really just categorizing process, how we do things. And so you can look at a constitution and say, how are we going to bring members in? How are we going to move members out? Now, how you do that may look very different when your church only has 15 members. Right now, there's 201 members of Grace Fellowship Church. And so we might look at our constitution and say, we wrote that constitution for this kind of church. Now we're that kind of church. It's no great shakes to change your constitution in order to make it a useful document that you can live by. Because I'll tell you what, the other option is you begin to ignore your constitution and then you just make changes willy-nilly to whatever you want. And then when you do have some kind of crisis, which God willing, we will never have, <laughs> people can look at you and say, well, what do you mean? You're not following the Constitution here, 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 and here. Why do we have to follow it now in this crisis? Right? So, I want you to take out your Constitution and let's read that out loud together. No, we're not going to read the Constitution out loud together. That would be boring. Uh, <laughs> But you, you may, like, if, if you're having trouble sleeping at night, you might want to read the Constitution. But I'll tell you what constitutions are great for. Constitutions, if they're written well, are great at protecting you from secret meetings, rogue committees, hostile takeovers, coups. I, I, I'm embarrassed to say the number of churches I know that have suffered from these things. Um, I think if you have a good constitution, those kinds of things are impossible. So I pray that we never need to use ours that way, but I'm really glad we have one. And I'm glad because someday I'm going to die, and I want the guy who's after me to just walk in and go, man, that's a great constitution, and, and it'll really help the church. So I praise God we have a constitution, and members, let's abide by that constitution. So there you have it. There it is, the three C's of an elder-led congregational church. Confession, covenant, 
Constitution, these three, but the greatest of these is Jesus. <laughs> right? Because these are just documents. These are not God. These are not the gospel. They're not what we worship. They're useful tools. And it's important for every member, every member needs to understand their, their order of importance as well as how they're to be used in the church. And if you as a member have a really good working knowledge of these things, then you just go out and play ultimate. You see? We know what the rules are. We know the game that we're playing. We, we know the spirit of the game. We're just gonna, we all agree this is the game. We just go out and we do it. So we can get on with preaching Jesus to the world, bringing new believers into the, the herd, sticking them in the middle so they're good and protected, treating each other as well as we can, helping each other to, along to the grand finish line. You may be tempted to think of documents like these as a big waste of time, but I would urge you to reconsider that. They're not as important as the Lord. They're not as important as as the Bible, but when they are written well and used correctly, they are a great aid to keeping your eyes on Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, and the book he gave us to live our lives by. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, please help us to be the kind of people who live the things we say There is always in every single member of this church a potential to drift away, to drift away from what is true, to tolerate sins, uh, to put up with a second-rate kind of artificial Christianity. And we pray that whether it's these tools or even better, Lord, just uh, being under the word and being sharpened from our fellowship with each other, we would be the kind of Christians who live all out for you all the way. I would pray especially for those of us that are a bit older and maybe tired and feeling like, um, we, well, I don't know what we're feeling, but maybe, Lord, we would take greater zeal to look at these things again and to really believe them and to live by them. And I pray for the young, younger ones, especially young adults, new members of our church who maybe you're not familiar with living the Christian life this way, that they'd take that covenant and read it and live by it and check themselves by it. They'd read that constitution so they understand how the church operates. Help us to take these things to heart, Lord, and to be just to be really good and faithful churchmen and churchwomen. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.